0: Raymond, she said, I've got something big I want to discuss with you. She said, would you like us, essentially, to take your brand into India for you? And she said, before you say yes or no, I've got one question for you. Will you let us do it and do it as an Indian version of Simon Cash, or will you insist on it being exactly your collection that you've got in London? And she said, the answer to this question is whether you get on a plane to Bangalore next week.
1: Welcome to our podcast series, Talk Straight, Think Smart with Howard Kennedy. My name's Adam Wolford, I'm a partner at the firm and your host for this series. In this episode, I'm talking to men's fashionwear designer Simon Carter. We hear how even with the best legal advice, sometimes nature has other plans. Yes, we know what you're thinking, another podcast by a law firm, but this podcast isn't about us, it's about the people we're interviewing. Today I'm talking to Simon Carter, the man behind the brand that carries his name. This interview explores his journey from the brooch that inspired it all, to taking a chance on his side hustle, and on to global expansion in the face of (laughs) COVID-19. Simon, thanks very much for joining us today. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, it'd be great to start with hearing a bit more about you. You're you're a well-known uh, person, but but it's always nice to hear firsthand uh, people's accounts of themselves. So perhaps let's start at the beginning um, with what your earliest memories are, childhood experiences that have been formative for you.
0: Well, I'd love to say that I was brought up by my French nanny, or went to finishing school in Zurich or something. But it was uh, unfortunately not. It was a very sort of boring middle class upbringing. And I was sort of programmed from an early age to, to be a, a doctor, but I uh, singularly failed to get enough grades. So I ended up doing immunology at Chelsea College in the 1980s on the King's Road, And that was my sort of uh, further education. Uh, for the sake of humanity, it was probably a good job that I didn't want to do it. Um, I would have made a lousy scientist uh, and, and got very easily distracted, particularly by vintage things and shops and design and, and things like that. So those were the kind of early years that took me to London and got me interested in, in design and retail as well, because I had a part time job in a vintage shop one day a week.
1: Um, so was there was there any uh, sort of family linkage to that design interest? Did, what did your parents do were they, were they exposing you to that or was it?
0: My parents both had their own businesses and so I was brought up in in quite a sort of uh, mercantile environment. Mm -hmm. They both instilled very early on for me a sort of love of antiques and good furniture and good design. It was was never something that was openly discussed but we were just always surrounded by good taste when we were growing up. And my mother um, had uh, the largest at the time, the largest handmade high-end Christmas cracker business, yes. Right, wow. Yeah, it was a thing. And she started it. And this was a very unusual thing for women to do in the 80s even, I suppose, was to found their own businesses. My father was a management consultant when that was a rare beast in itself and people didn't really know what that was. So they were both uh, very pioneering in some respects. So when I said that I wanted to go into business, they were very uh, supportive um, and encouraging Mm -hmm. To, to, for me to do it so there was never any sense of oh well you know you need to go back and study or carry on as an immunologist. it was much more like yeah okay well give it a go that sounds like an idea
1: that's great it's almost uh, witnessing an entrepreneurial mindset at the coalface and so you had something to role model on or, or perhaps to give you the confidence to to take that step and step away from formal study and go with something different
0: yeah. And, and to some extent, it wasn't it was it wasn't a huge jump into the unknown for me because while I was at university, I'd actually started this business mm-hmm. um, by buying and selling vintage clothing and then uh, selling it to the shop on the Kings Road where I worked. So I was already starting to trade a little bit. And as soon as I quit university, I got a job um, on the graduate training scheme at Fenix Department Store in Brent Cross. Right. So I sort of drew a line onto the whole science thing and Moved into into retail, but I I was developing the business, and I um, I began doing brooches. Um, those of us are old enough to know the eighties will remember, and that's not you. I've no, no, no. Young.
1: I am just. I mean, I have very well very, very remember
0: that the eighties was, was all about uh, the kind of new romantics, and and guys wore brooches. You know, it was it was a thing, and I found these little vintage pieces and got them copied. And I had a hundred made, I put all my savings in, I had a hundred made of this little motorcyclist brooch from the 1930s, little chap on a motorbike. And I had them made in Pewter from a factory in Cornwall. And I started at the top end of the King's Road, knocking on every door of every shop, which was a lot easier because all the shops were independent, owned and run and the owners tended to be there. By the time I got to the bottom of the King's Road, uh, with these hundred of these in my leather Gladstone bag, because that was a thing, I hadn't sold a single one. It was all a complete tragedy. And it started to rain and I was feeling very sorry for myself. And then I plucked up courage and went into a very swanky jewellery shop at the bottom of Sloane Street called Cobra and Bellamy, mm-hmm. run by these two very intimidating and legendary ladies. And I was like, Oh do want to buy a lot of And um, I thought they were gonna kick me out and they looked at them and I said, Yeah, we'll take fifty. And <laughs> and that was it. You know, every 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 sort of entrepreneur i guess has a turning point, and that was the turning point because the next shop i went into they said oh i don't know and i said well carbon on let me just bought 15. oh all right then we'll take a dozen yeah that was that was the break
1: that's that's fascinating and so was it when you started with the brooches then was it a, a deliberate thing that you saw a product that you thought would really resonate with the time and there was a market for or was it more a passion thing that for you it was a personal interest thing and uh, and you could see that others may want to buy it. So so I guess I guess what I'm asking is, were you coming at it very much from a sales mentality? Or were you coming at it from a, I appreciate design, I like these objects, and I'd like to get involved with them and I hope others will follow sort of thing?
0: That's a really good question. And I think goes to the heart of the whole business and what it's been doing for 33 years in that I think, that there is a balance in me between creativity and commerciality where, um, which might be unusual in that I've got a bit of both. I'm not the world's best designer, I'm not the world's best businessman, but I can do both okay. Whereas so many great designers have no sense of business and no business people can design. And I think going back to the brooches, I I wore it. It was a gift for a day's work and I wore it and got a lot of comments and so that like of the piece and that enjoyment of wearing it went to, I wonder if everyone says they like it, perhaps everyone would buy one. And that, so that was the the step in a way. It started from, it started from an aesthetic step. Yeah. And then moved into an opportunity step.
1: Very interesting. I can see that. And it's, I guess it's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? Is to listen to the feedback you're receiving, which you were receiving the positive feedback and it, it, Indicated there may well be a market for it. So, you, you mentioned about um, the 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 moment when you got your first big order being being a turning point. Was was that a turning point where you you then stopped everything else you were doing and went whole into the business, or were you doing that thing that so many entrepreneurs do, where where they're juggling juggling the day job, if you like, and and the other at the same time?
0: Yes, the latter. Nowadays we'd call it a side hustle, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. We hadn't invented that in 1985. <laughs> so I was doing this uh, assistant buyer's job and trainee buyer's job at Phoenix and Brent Cross and it was a, a shift pattern. Mm-hmm. So I had every other Monday and Friday off. So they gave me some time to uh, put more designs into the range and then literally physically old school door to door, take them around London initially and then out of town a bit to Brighton and places. And I did that for a couple of years. And then there came a point where it was clear that one or the other was going to have to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was in 1987. And by that stage, I was already selling to Harrods. I had a client base of about 40 different stockists. And my parents had been quite supportive to to the idea of, initially, of of me setting up and doing this and giving it a go. I think they quite liked the idea that I was at Fenix, which was a big, a big name, and liked the security of it. And I remember going home and saying to them, "Look, I've, I'm at a crossroads, and I've got to, I've got to make my mind up, what which one I should do." And they said, "There was no question of it. You know, if, if you don't take this opportunity now, you know, you'll, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. I and mean, you have to seize this and and do it. You have to definitely stay there and qualify as a buyer, and you'll work your way up to a group merchandise manager." And so I quit the next day. <laughs>
1: Did did you then did you then walk into the buyer's office in Fennec and tell them that you've got a fabulous product that they should be stocking? I
0: did sell it back to Fennec later on. Oh, there you go. Yeah, wow. I did. Yeah, funnily enough. But what a great training and, and full marks to to Fenix who employed graduates with disciplines way outside conventional retailing. I mean, yeah. why would you employ an immunologist? But they obviously saw something there. Yeah. And I, I was their fastest qualifying buyer. I ended up buying soft furnishings. Wow. So before I came, the king of cufflings, so I was the prince of pelmets, <laughs> so, and they were very, you know, they were, they were, that oh, was nice, it was sorry to, to see me go, but, and they understood, and they were, they were very um, supportive, and it was, you know, it was a good experience, because you learn what makes a department store tick, and of course, they turn out to be your target customers, and I knew what was I liked about the good reps and the bad reps and I was able to take that into practice when I began knocking on the partner store doors.
1: Yeah, so that you were hopefully well received and it would e- ease the process, even even if the product was great, that the, the sale side of it should be easier.
0: It, exactly. I think if you just understand what makes them tick and how they operate it is gonna help.
1: And so that that that's interesting. In terms of how people tick and how they operate, lots of businesses talk about values. Um uh, was that something that was sort of front of mind for you when you were starting to establish the business to to more than yourself? Were, were you keen to build a business with values at the heart of it or were, were the values uh, an incidental that arose from doing business?
0: I think the values were there, just never consciously acknowledged until probably much later on when we began to do work around how is this a brand and what makes it a brand and not a label? And then you have to start to tease out that DNA, even if it's just so you can explain it to future brand partners. Yeah. So it was always there, and the three values that underpin everything that I do today were there right back in 83, 84, 85, which are around originality of design mm-hmm. and great quality of product and good value for money and, they, and those, they, they haven't changed they're still there you know there's, there's probably secondary and tertiary layers but but at the core of it are those three values
1: and do you try to translate those values into what people do day to day in the office or are they the values for the for the product and the brand if you like and then you have separate values or do you have to get an alignment in order to get an authenticity to those in the product
0: I think the starting point is that I need to employ people who understand and agree with those values. And if you can if you end up employing somebody on the design side who just doesn't get about great design or, so, or a factory that, that's going to cut corners, then, then they're not going to be part of the team, they're not going to be part of the family. I think there's, there's different aspects when it comes to, say, my store design. They're there to reflect the product and that reflects the brand. Sure. But I think in terms of of people, they instinctively get it. Mm -hmm. And if I'm having to correct them and explain frequently, then they're probably not going to fit.
1: Yeah. And I guess the brand message is very clear. So people applying for the job, as long as you are authentic to the brand internally, should, should know what they're getting into, really. Yes, exactly. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And so you've talked about recruiting people. Um, Who who are the key people who have influenced the business over the years?
0: That's a good question too. Well, um, I founded it with um, my um, since ex-wife, but probably still closest friend, Wendy. So she does all the financial side of it Mm -hmm. and uh, leaves me to do the creative side of it. I have an excellent I have an excellent team and we're a small team here, here at the head office. We're actually a very small team. And it's a brand that sort of punches above its weight in a way because you could go from Sydney, where if you go into David Jones Department Store, there's a beautiful Simon Carter area. You could travel up to Hong Kong and go in Harvey Nichols and all there's Simon Carter and Mm -hmm. you could go via Singapore and and then India where I have 11 stores, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And you'd think, gosh, this is a, this is a big business. But actually, it isn't at the heart, because they're all brand partners. Yeah. They're, they're people I trust to take my brand and do the right thing with it. So actually, we're really really core. Cool. And I think that some of the um, people who've been with me longest on the journey are the ones that were right necessarily for that time and, and have just carved out those roles. Mm-hmm. And the brand partners that we've brought in as as that development side of it has gone on have fitted a much more geographical and global need than a domestic or uh, business-centric need. And the key for me is to identify them and get the right brand partner, whether it's whether it's someone who works in the stockroom, if you say they're a partner to my brand, or whether it's... My partners in India with their twenty-five year vision.
1: So to, actually, that's a brilliant thing to move on to. I'd I'd love to hear more about India. I know that early in twenty twenty, um, I'd read about plans for India. Um, how ha, how has um, COVID uh, affected those, if it has at all, and and how 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 you see in the future for for that.
0: Well, I can remember uh, boring people, or some people were polite enough to listen, about 10 to 15 years ago. And I said that, actually it might have been before that, it might have been the very late 90s, when I said that this century, and certainly these decades, will be about India and about Africa. Mm -hmm. And if you you want to talk to me about the States, I'll give them 10 minutes. It's a really tough market. Mm. It's tough to get into physically, and they are very cautious in terms of the brands they like. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk to me about China, yeah, for sure. It's probably actually realistically the largest market in the world. I'll give you half an hour. It's still really tough, massive intellectual property problems. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk to me about West Africa or India, I've got all the time you want. And that's always been my way of looking at it. And this opportunity for India came about because we were stocked in a series of high-end, small, high-end department stores in India for a number of years. Um, on my clothing and accessories. And and it it worked, it worked really well. We were a brand that seemed to to resonate and be appreciated. And I remember getting a phone call, on holiday in Ireland in May, 2012. And the, my friend, my my contact there, uh, Raymond, she said, I've got something big I want to discuss with you. She said, would you like us essentially to take your brand into India for you? And she said, before you say yes or no, I've got one question for you. Will you let us do it and do it as an Indian version of Simon Carter or will you insist on it being exactly your collection that you've got in London? And she said, the answer to this question is whether you get on a plane to Bangalore next week. okay. Mm. So I said, well, the point about working with brand partners is you've got to introduce that element of pragmatism. You are there on the ground because you know the market. I know the brand, you know the market. So let's work that together to come up with Simon Carter that works for India. He said, "Great, Bangalore on Wednesday," and that's how that kicked off. And it took a long time to do the deal. It took five years to do the deal. There were a lot of intellectual property issues. It's not straightforward. Yeah, um, a lot better now. And we opened the first store about three and a half years ago. Went out to eleven stores, and we've got pipeline plans there for another eight stores. I think.
1: Wow. So that's uh, it's really interesting. You mentioned earlier about uh, when we were talking about key people influencing the business about trust and uh, very soon after that you mentioned about the brand partners and then we had five years of deal making so what was the five years of deal making just legal challenges around uh, intellectual property or, w- or was there an element of this which was finding the relationship between you and somebody who was going to be so instrumental in expanding in what you perceived to be a key market for you
0: yeah great questions both so i worked uh, with uh, your esteemed colleague, Robert Lands yep. on this, and um, it taxed the patience of us both. There are issues. So, for instance, let me give you an example. In India, until fairly recently, there were four regional trademark offices, and you could pick which one you wanted to register your mark in. We chose Delhi. It looked like the most up-to-date. Delhi had... Everything was done on paper mm. until, again, fairly recently, and Delhi had a flood. And most of the paperwork got very badly damaged in the flood, Hmm. so they took them all out onto the street to dry them out, and around 185,000 trademark applications
1: blew away. Wow! Yeah. And there's no and there's no carbon copy. No, and that was it.
0: And that was it at that stage. It it genuinely has got massively better now. So that we just kept encountering issues like this. The, the individuals in the individual trademark offices can file their own objections in, in a system that's completely unique. Mm. They, don't, and, and they don't all necessarily have a nuanced and good understanding of the English language. So we were, we, we were fighting a lot of battles to get this through. So the deal itself became complex because they really wanted to do it, but they put a lot of predicator clauses in that said, well, we'll do it. But if you don't get the trademarks, this is the consequence, and this is our backout. This is our backout policy, and this is your payback time. Mm. So, it was complicated. It stopped. It started, and then eventually they came to London. We had one of those sort of nuclear disarmament, exchanging pen style dinners. I think in my club, where um, exhausted, it was a picture of us kind of going. Oh. And sort of swapping these things over and then after that they've been completely brilliant so that, that was the reasons why and it would have been very easy at, at halfway through that to walk away you know I was cranking up legal bills with nothing happening and I thought no there's something about this these people really believe in my brand and they've got they've got the legs to do this. They own in outright India's four largest uh, shirt brands. they operate I think it was 1,200 shops across India. I've gotta hang in here they're gonna do this. And we did it. Um, And people-wise, I always got on with them. So when I was working with them, when they had their department stores, I got on with them. And all through this, I've got on with them. And going to India has just been an absolute joy. I I can't wait so I can go back there.
1: And I'm sure that that must have been a part of it. That must have, the the personal relationship with them is it must have given you the confidence to hang in there and deliver the trust in the heat of the transaction when you were having all of these obstacles and it felt like it was, you know, taking longer than you wanted probably that's it, it delivers the trust but it's interesting that it still came down to ultimately a crunch meeting of face to face and looking at each other and saying this is the leap where we go together you know
0: yes yeah and you know they were spending a lot of money up front on a brand that, that had only made a little ding in the market through a presence in some department stores, mm-hmm. and here they are making well the deal itself yeah it's a 30-year deal so oh. i thought well Let's, let's give it a go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And has COVID had an impact on, on, on that and your wider business? Oh, hugely.
0: Yeah, enormously. I mean, they, they, um, they are re- starting to return to a little bit of normalcy. Yeah. But they have full lockdowns, so the same as the rest of us. Their mortality rate does not seem to have been so high. And India, for all its sort of many faults and great areas of poverty, it is proving remarkably nimble and, and adept at rolling out vaccines to its people. So there's a mood more of optimism across India, and certainly I, I, I've got a review meeting with them tomorrow. That their immediate plans look look build on confidence, but yes, I mean it went it went very dormant. Like a lot of businesses, it made them look at their online, which I think had not been as strong as their retail, and yep. they have grown that considerably. I think by about fifty or sixty percent. But I, one thing in all of this pandemic, when it, when it broke a year ago, I thought, I wonder, I you know, wonder how many partners I'm going to lose and, and that's not because they giving up on me, it's just that they can't carry on. There's a difference. I just started a project in Korea, that I hope will look similar to what I'm doing in India in a few years time mm-hmm. something very new like that. You think, well, I can't imagine them continuing and not at all. You know, they've, they hung in there. So it's been it's been a state of global hibernation, I suppose would, would be the phrase for it, and just now a few little flickers of life.
1: And and in that in that hibernation stage, where we've all had to try and continue to trade, have you have you tried to find ways of being more agile, or um, how, how have you how have you attacked survival? Have you done things differently in your business that you wouldn't have dreamt of in ordinary circumstances or similar? Well, we
0: sold a lot of face mask
1: packs um i mean that's a
0: small uh, benefit in all of this. so we did we when it broke my again my indian colleagues had produced these beautiful cotton washable face masks in a pack of three and we brought those in and uh, we sold those for 20 pounds for a pack and it, i i hadn't really anticipated just how big a market that would be my shop in south london mm-hmm. just like the road here in crystal palace we've sold around about 16,000 pounds worth of face masks from there. It helps a little bit and it is a good product. I'm really proud to stand behind. But what have we done differently? Well, we just went into sort of nuclear bunker mode at first. So we, we, we furloughed, we furloughed everybody. And because we've got five stop stores of our own that we operate, and then we've got the design, warehousing and distribution here, the market where I'm speaking to you from. And we just furloughed everybody. And then, we called them back in one at a time as we began to need them. And my exercise was, let's see who we're left with on furlough after a few months and then think, why have we not called you back in? Now, retail, it's obvious, like, there wasn't a job for them.
1: and we, Shops aren't open, no one's... Shops aren't open, and
0: we didn't shed a single retail um, uh, position because I've got a fantastic team there who, who, are, who are really great brand ambassadors. But in terms of the head office, we got to a stage where we got everybody back in bar two or three and we analyzed and one of them was a fairly senior position and we analyzed it and thought actually, this is a chance to just do some restructuring Mm -hmm. and that role doesn't exist and another role doesn't exist. So we become leaner and I think with a much better energy as a result of it. We have Monday morning creative meetings where the agenda is, I want everybody to bring at least two ideas to this meeting, and there's no such thing as a bad idea. Mm. And I think it's about getting your best team ready for when, what we are predicting could be completely wrong, but the wall of demand comes crashing down and there will be opportunities where you need to react really quickly. And you can't have anybody holding that back.
1: No, you want to be primed and ready so that as it happens, you can just grab the opportunities coming, coming past. Yeah absolutely well yeah we we talk a lot about agility within our business and uh, are very mindful of, of this in in lots of different sectors that we we serve so I can can directly relate so that that's been fascinating um we it's time for us to start drawing the uh, podcast to a close um As I explained to you earlier, at the end, we um, we like to have with every podcast a quick fire round. So um, you've seen similar to this before, I'm sure. So don't don't overthink it. Just say say what feels right. So. um, So how many days of the week are you in a Simon Carter shirt?
0: Uh, That's got to be seven days a week because I get them for free.
1: Okay. Uh, In a Zoom meeting, are you suited and booted? Or active casual wear. I
0: would say you can judge for yourself. It's jacket and shirt time. It's it's the new business. It's the new business.
1: Yeah, you, you're looking very dapper today, if I may say. Uh, would you rather grow your business, sell your business, or start again? I want to grow it.
0: I want to grow it to a position where I can sell it and start again.
1: <laughs> very good answer. What would you invest more in right now, people or tech? I would be buying up. Porsche 928
0: S's, Ferrari 308 GT4 Dinos and as many Ford Sierra Cosberts as I could find and putting them in a barn.
1: <laughs> Is that because of the inheritance tax on classic no, cars? No,
0: that's because I love old cars and always have always had them and um, that would be the best way of investing. No, right now I'm absolutely convinced it's about, it's about getting my right people and I, I talked a bit about that in the interview.
1: You did, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and final one, when it comes to decision making, are you perfection every time or launch and learn?
0: Oh, well, I'm much more the kind of give it and go and, and regret later. Or I should say, give it a go and learn later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can be very gung-ho. I think my team think I'm probably a bit too impetuous. But I will say, right, bang, we're going to do that. And you can see them going, oh, I don't know about that. And then probably 60% of the time I'm right and 40% it can be fixed and we'll learn. And that's, that's not a bad result.
1: I think it's, uh, it's an important thing to be braver uh, on occasions and to just go for it. So,
0: yeah. Well, somebody gave me, and this is, this is quite a good phrase to sort of wrap up with, somebody gave me a fantastic phrase last year. I played, uh, this is a bit weird, and you don't necessarily know this about me, I played croquet at a very competitive level. I played for England. And sometimes you can go for the safe shot, and sometimes you can go for the risky shot. And somebody gave me a really good saying, and they said, if you don't take the risk,
1: you'll miss the chance. Very good. Wonderful ending. Yeah, thank like you. You've done all the editing for me. You gave me the perfect wrap up for the uh, for, for the dialogue and everything. The, the, the perfect guest. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating to hear. Pleasure, Adam. All the best. And there you have it. A lesson for all of us to take the opportunities that arise. This episode was recorded via Zoom in January 2021 during the UK's third lockdown. We hope you found it interesting and insightful. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your content to find out which inspirational entrepreneur we're speaking to next.